calendar. I'm excited for that. Uh, all right. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Psalm 96? Psalm 96. I apologize. My, I think the dry weather, uh, the pollen has finally gotten to me. My throat is extremely dry today. Um, so I'm going to be sipping on some water. Um, we're looking at Psalm 96. <clears throat> Part of the reason for setting aside one Sunday uh, dedicated to focusing on God's global mission is for us to take a step back uh, from the week in and week out nature of church and to gaze upward and catch a glimpse of what the worldwide and throughout time scope of what God is doing. Uh, I love when my family's out hiking that uh, we're going up and down the hills, we're going over streams, we're going around fallen trees. Your eyes are kind of going from like down the trail to your feet, make sure you're not stepping on anything or tripping over a log, you know that feeling. I love that as you're going through the woods, you're deep in the woods, you're going up the hill, and then you see off to the side there is a beautiful scenic overlook where you can pause and take a break and then see and behold the beauty and the majesty of nature. It's gorgeous. You see the whole panorama of what you've been working through. Our goal today is to be reminded of that vast and beautiful panorama that is the landscape of God's global mission, to be caught up in the beauty of it all, to see what we are a part of, that we are a part of something that is far bigger than what we're doing here at Story Church, that we are part of something big. To do that, we're going to look at Psalm 96, which is one of many psalms that highlight this global scope of what God is doing in the world. As we look at it, my hope is that we would walk away with a deeper understanding of what that global mission is, and that we would have a desire to see it happen through us. And to do that, we're going to look at the goal of global missions, the reason for global missions, and the urgency of global missions. So would you follow along as I read Psalm 96? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. 
Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us how we are to worship you. It teaches us who you are, your character and your actions. We pray now as we sit under it, would you send your spirit to convict us and conform us into the likeness of your son. In his name we pray, amen. So first, let's look at the goal of global missions. What is the end game for missions? What, why has the church, from all the way back in the book of Acts, throughout the centuries into today, why have men and women, young and old, made the decision to travel beyond their borders of their home? Why have they learned to connect with a new culture? Why, why have they translated the scriptures into new languages? Why do they share the gospel and plant churches? What is the goal of all of this? It is to fulfill what this psalm calls us to. To have men and women from every people upon the earth lift up their voices to sing songs of praise to the Lord God and to bless his name for his glory and his marvelous works. That is what this psalm shows us. It is an invitation to the nations to come and worship. That is the goal of missions. Worship. As Pastor John Piper has famously said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Psalm 96 is an invitation to all the peoples of the earth to come into God's presence and to give him praise, to come and worship him and give him glory. By one count and definition, there are uh, just over 17,000 distinct people groups among the world. These are communities that have a similar language and history and cultural makeup, over 17,000 of them in the world. And of those 17,000, 42% of them are categorized as being unreached. 3.4 billion people on this earth right now are unreached. That means that they have little or no access to the gospel and have very minimal Christian presence living with them. These are the least reached people, 3.4 billion. And there are significant barriers to receiving and understanding the gospel there. Now, we need to rethink this because these aren't just deep jungle communities that are just hard to get to. These are booming metropolises across the world, largely in Asia and South Asia, Northern Africa, but increasingly so in Europe. Just two weeks ago, we had Elijah and Jesse Brooke up here talking about their church plant in Scotland, which is fast becoming one of the unreached people groups of the world. The largest of these 
people groups are those living in India, where over 1.3 billion people are unreached. And only 2.3% of that country are Christians. Do you know that Mayfield is one of the largest Indian populations on the east side of Cleveland? We don't have to go to the other side of the world to invite the nations to worship God. Now, that 42% of the world that are considered unreached, those men and women and children, they are believers in some kind of God. Most predominantly, they're Muslim or closely followed by Hindus and Buddhists. Uh, But to put it frankly, 42% of the world are offering up their songs of praise to some other deity. And yet this psalmist says in verse 4 that the Lord, Yahweh, is great. That great is Yahweh, the God of Israel. He alone is to be feared above all the gods of the world. Why is the God of Israel to be feared? That is to be worshipped with fear and trembling above all other options in the world? The psalmist continues, all of the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. That is, they are void of any power or authority. Whether they're demonic in nature or merely man-made, the psalmist doesn't dwell on that question. But his point is, nonetheless, compared to Yahweh, they are no match. Why? Because Yahweh is the one who made the heavens. That is, he is the creator God, the one from whom and to whom and in whom all things and all people exist. What's interesting, um, in my studies of this passage, I, I learned that Psalm 96, we know, was sung by the people of God when they were in Jerusalem and they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city. They sang Psalm 96. The Ark of the Covenant, that golden box uh, that held the Ten Commandments and um, Aaron's staff, it it was a, a physical representation of and symbolic of the very presence of God. And before it got brought to Jerusalem, it was captured by the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. And just before it got brought to Jerusalem, when the Philistines had it, they set up the Ark of the Covenant in their temple to their gods, their idols, the the god of uh, Dagon. And what was interesting is the day after they set up the Ark in the temple of Dagon, they went into the temple to see it, and the statue of Dagon had fallen over in homage to the Ark. They didn't know what happened. So they set it back up, and they're like, all right, that was a fluke. Maybe there was an earthquake. They come back the second day. Again, the statue, the idol of Dagon, had fallen over before the ark. And to show that this was nothing, that it was a worthless idol, his hands had broken off. He had no power. His head had broken off. He has no authority. Before the Lord, all the idols of the world are worthless. That's what the psalmist is saying. Yahweh is to be feared, not the gods of the world. Whether they are physical statues that people go and worship, or whether they are other things in which we place our trust and our hope and find our salvation 
The psalmist says they are worthless. These 42% of the world, they are men and women created in the image of God, created to give God worship, who are presently serving and praising and worshiping worthless idols. We don't need to debate if they were doing this, if they're doing this willingly, or like if they've rejected the God of the Bible, or if if it just so happens that, they're, uh, that they had been born into these unreached people groups, we don't need to debate how it happens because Jesus doesn't debate that when he tells his disciples, go and make disciples of the nations. The church of Jesus Christ participates in the global mission of evangelism. Simply put, because there are men, women, and children who are created to give God worship, to give him glory, who have not yet joined their voices with ours in singing him these songs of praise. That's the goal of global missions, to see worship amongst the nations. Let's look also now at the reason for global missions. By reason, I mean, what is our internal motivation? What is our desire? What should our desire be? Why should we care about this? Well, we should care about it because God cares about it. Look, the global mission has been God's intention from the very beginning of time. His desire from the beginning was that the whole world would be caught up in his glory. Remember, when he made man and woman in Genesis, that he created us in his image to multiply and cover the world with God's glory that it was to be a worldwide display of glory. This plan continues despite the fall. When God calls Abraham to himself and begins his plan of redemption through the people of Israel, he promises to Abraham that through him, blessing would come to all the nations of the world. So even in God selecting an individual, it was always for the purpose of blessing the nations. We see that in the Exodus, that the people of God are redeemed out of Egypt and sent to the promised land, given the law to live before God. Why? So that they might be a light to the nations. It wasn't an end to themselves, but was always to be for the nations to come and see the glory of God. That's why Jesus sends out his disciples to take the message of the gospel beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but then take it to the ends of the world. In our assurance of forgiveness from Revelation 5, we see the fruit of that mission, the global praise of Jesus' name around the throne in heaven that is comprised of voices from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation. The mission of God has always been and will always be a mission to bring redemption and restoration to the nations, to bring men, women, and children from all over the world into his glorious grace. It was for this purpose that Jesus was slain. He has purchased for God people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Why is that God's plan? Why doesn't he just focus on one ethnic group, one people group, one language, one nationality? Why does he want and desire 
a multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural worship, let me contend with you that the reason for this plan is that God is given greater praise for this multicultural worship. Let me repeat that. God receives greater praise when there is a diverse people worshiping him. That's pretty heavy. Let me try to argue that using four illustrations. Verse 1 and 2 of our passage invites the nations to join their voices together and to sing a new song to the Lord. Like a choir or an orchestra that is comprised of many different sounds, many different rhythms and instruments and voices, yet when they are combined, they produce a beautiful piece of music. And you end up with something that is far greater than the mere sum of the parts. Similarly, when God is worshipped throughout the world from the lips of a diverse people, his praise is greater than the sum of the parts. His majesty and beauty are displayed in the creative differences amongst the praise of the nations. We will behold his greatness more through the diversity of this choir than in the whole choir were of one note. In verse 9, the families of the peoples of the earth are invited to come and worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, the splendor of it. In verse 6, they are to behold his beauty, all of the families of the earth beholding his beauty. Now, different cultures, different backgrounds, different histories have their own unique forms of art and displays of beauty. So art in the Eastern world uh, looks different than the art in the Western world, right? What, what someone in the Middle East might think is beautiful is, might look different than what someone from the West or the Global South thinks is beautiful. What is considered art out of the Eastern and Asian backgrounds is going to look different than Sub-Saharan Africa. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So when there is a uniting of people from the various backgrounds of the world, and each of them have their own understanding and recognition of beauty, and yet together they find God beautiful, then we behold his greatness even more. We see just how beautiful he is, not just from my own perspective, but from the nations. The psalmist says in verse 10, the Lord reigns which is a declaration that he is king. He is the one in charge. He is victorious over the enemy. He leads his people. We all know that one of the markers of a great leader is the ability to lead a team that is large and diverse with different perspectives, personalities, histories, preferences, experiences. Yet we see here that the Lord reigns over all the earth. All the peoples of the world come to him and bow before him and submit to him as their leader. We behold his greatness more when we see the nations submit to him. Finally, we see in verse 10 that God will judge the world with equity. That is, his ultimate dealing with the peoples of the world will be fair and unbiased, not, not based upon any particular ethnic, cultural, or any other identifier. 
There's not one people group to whom God will show more or less favor upon. That is, it's all by grace. Any preference given to one such people or ethnic or cultural background over another is contrary to the way and character of God. It is contrary to the impartial character of him. That men and women from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation have been ransomed by the blood of Christ, and that there is no one made more superior is another reason why the nations coming together, we see his greatness even more. The reason why we should care about engaging in the global mission of God is that we would behold and experience and praise his greatness more and more. That should be our desire, to behold his glory in seeing the nations come and praise his name. Finally, let's turn now to the urgency of global missions. In verse 10, the psalmist says, the Lord reigns. That is, he is decisively and definitively the king and Lord over all the earth. And that he will establish this reign upon the earth. In part, we read, through judgment. In verse 13, we read that his judgment is imminent. It is coming. The Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and he'll judge the peoples in his faithfulness. Now, when we think about judgment, our thinking tends to be influenced by popular culture, whether it's books, pictures, art, movies. Uh, We think of judgment primarily as fire and brimstone. We tend to think that judgment is primarily about destruction. There's certainly a point to that. Let me illustrate, though. My family uh, and I were recently hiking, uh, two hiking illustrations today. Um, We were recently hiking in North Chagrin. This was a couple of weeks or months ago. And we were making our way along the trail, and we began to smell what smelled like something burning, a char. Uh, This is long before the Canadian wildfires had crept down. Uh, We could smell something burning, and we eventually came upon this large field that was all black and charred. And we learned later on that the wildlife department had come in and had done a controlled burn of that field just the day before. It was still embering. And uh, what was fascinating is, you know, we, we learned about these controlled burns that when a field becomes overpopulated, when it becomes too thick with invasive species that good and healthy plants and trees can't grow properly, they do a controlled burn of an area to clear it out so that the land could be restored. I, I think when we think about judgment, we should think about that. The judgment isn't predominantly about destruction. Judgment is predominantly about restoration. Yes, restoration through destruction, but destruction is not its ultimate goal. Rejuvenation is. Restoration. Reclamation is about restoration. This is why the psalmist says that the whole earth rejoices. The seas roar at this. 
and all the fish within them. The fields exult at this judgment and all the animals upon it. Even the trees of the forest sing out for joy. Have you ever heard a tree creaking in the wind? It can sing, and it sings for joy at the coming of the Lord, the one who reigns over all, the one who is certainly coming to bring final, ultimate, decisive judgment. Why? For the purpose of restoration. You see, creation bears witness to the fact that things are not the way they should be. It's not just humans who have been affected by the fall that our first parents uh, had the responsibility for. It is uh, in their sin, the whole of creation was subjected to the curse. And so the whole of creation is awaiting the restoration of all things. It's what Paul writes in Romans 8. And so when the psalmist turns his attention to judgment, he's turning his attention to the hope of the world. The solution to the pain and the hurting and the suffering and the evil that he sees. Dane Ortland in this psalm says this, that this is the hope that all wrongs will be addressed. All debts will be paid. He will judge the world in righteousness. And so every stabbing wound, every grievous hurt will be restored. The very trees themselves will rejoice. What a day. Isaiah 35 says the same thing. The wilderness and the dry lands will be glad. The desert shall rejoice and the blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. That's the world rejoicing. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mutes will sing for joy. All of this comes when the judgment of the Lord comes. Our psalmist is crying out for the coming of the king to bring restoration. He wants the nations to join him in that restored world. The psalmist wants the whole earth, all of creation, and all the peoples of the earth to sing in anticipation of that coming king, to find their hope in him. Like I said, we know that this song was sung as the Ark of the Covenant was carried into Jerusalem. The people were crying out in joy, in celebration of the salvation that the Ark represented. Yes, the coming judgment, but ultimately the salvation. What's fascinating is that what we read here taking place, he's all, the psalmist is talking in the future tense. But friends, we have witnessed and we've heard of the fulfillment of this. In Luke 19, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, carried into Jerusalem. And again, the people are singing out and crying for joy at salvation. Yes, and judgment. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when the Pharisees demand that Jesus rebuke his followers for singing praises to him, he says, even if the people were silent, the rocks would cry out. Why? Because all of creation is longing for the king to come and bring restoration. The whole earth has joined in the song, the song that creation is meant to sing. Let's get back to the idea of urgency. Friends, 
Jesus, the king, has come, and he's coming again. His judgment has been brought, and it will come again. For those who have received him as their king and savior, who rest in him, the judgment has already come down on him instead of us. In a sense, Jesus experienced the destruction of judgment in our place so that through believing in him, we would pass through judgment and experience and enjoy restoration on the other side. And so for Christians who those trust in Jesus, we await his ultimate judgment, not with fear, but with hopeful and glad anticipation. But for those of the world who have not yet learned of this, who have not yet trusted in this, who have not yet joined their voices to this song, there is no escape from the coming judgment except through Christ. Therefore, because we believe that Jesus is that solution, because we believe that Jesus is the hope of the world, because we believe that Jesus is the only way through that judgment, we as a church and we as individuals ought to be about global missions. This is the urgency that we need to have. The judgment is coming. But for those who have received Christ, the verdict has been cast. We have been declared justified in the sight of God. And so we ought to be boldly, confidently, and passionately proclaiming this good news and hope to the world around us. How do we do that? There's a sheet in your bulletin. I said this is Mission Sunday, and I want to highlight the three ways we as a church and you as individuals can participate in that. The first is that we would pray, that we would pray corporately as a church and individually for missionaries, for international men and women who are going to places far from home to declare this good news, that we would pray for opportunities even in our own communities to do that too. I encourage you, add Elijah and Jesse Brooks to your prayer list. Include them as we pray for God's global mission. And other ways to go. You know, men and women who are international missionaries or, or even domestic, they're just ordinary people like us. They're ordinary people who have responded to the call to go. I would love to have every one of you here at Story Church forever, but if the Lord would call you to do something for his global mission, who am I to say no to that? Pray even that the Lord would send you and respond to his call. And finally, we can give. I mentioned earlier, we are beginning a missions fund to begin partnering with missionaries around the world. And we're starting with Elijah and Jesse, and our hope and prayer is that in the coming months and years, that we would be able to add additional partnerships that we as a church can get behind. I'm so excited for this opportunity and this next step in the life of our church. We said from the very beginning that we want to be a church plant that plants churches. This is a very practical and real way for us to be on that mission. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And if you uh, are, are so led to give to that missions fund, we're going to dedicate all the giving this Sunday and this week to that missions fund. You can give online using that QR code uh, or drop a physical gift in the basket here. Uh, 
we want you to know that that missions fund, you can always give to it. That category is always going to be available on our online giving portal. Uh, but our hope is that it would grow, that we could continue to bless, um, that we could continue to bless the nations with the hope of Jesus. Let's pray.